Well, so hopefully your Bibles are open to Isaiah chapter 8. It's common to preach Christmas messages from the book of Isaiah. I've done so a number of times, and I'm sure you've heard messages from Isaiah, Christmas messages, many times before. But ordinarily when we preach, we preach, we start at least in Isaiah chapter 7 or Isaiah chapter 9. Well, we're going to get to that well-known verse in Isaiah chapter 9 in a moment or two, but I really want to start perhaps in an unusual place. I want to start in Isaiah chapter 8 verse 1. Now, you should know as we begin that Christmas is a time for waiting. I mean, be honest. When did you start listening to Christmas music this year? You know, I've, I've read that people in America have started earlier than they have ever started before. And probably because of the pandemic and just some of the discouragement that's going on. In my neighborhood, I saw people putting up Christmas lights the day after Halloween. There is a, there is a longing, a longing for Christmas. We're waiting to give gifts. We're waiting to, to open gifts. We're waiting for family. But really... This year, it's even more so because I feel like the entire year, at least since March, it's been a whole season of waiting, right? We're waiting for life to get back to normal. Seems like every conversation I have with somebody is about, when do you think it's going to be back to normal? I don't know. When do you think it's going to be back to normal? We're, we're waiting. People are, are waiting for a vaccine. Some, some of you have had to wait through a quarantine. People have had to wait for test results. Some of you are waiting to get your job back. Some of you own businesses, but you're waiting for the business to be back to normal. People are waiting to travel. This has not been a banner year for anybody, but it has been a year when we have to wait. But the Bible has some good news. The Bible has good news for people who are waiting, and that's what I want to share with you this morning. Christmas, rightly understood and appreciated, gives us what we need to wait well. Christmas, when we really understand it, from an ancient perspective looking forward to the first Christmas, and from a contemporary perspective looking back to the first Christmas, when we really understand all that Christmas means, it gives us the strength and the hope that we need from the Lord to wait well. And so I have an ambitious plan this morning. I want to cover 2,700 years of history. So we're going to have to put on our thinking caps, and uh, I'm going to try to keep it short as I can, uh, but, but as historians, I want us to start uh, 700 BC, and we'll bring it all the way up to today. I want to share with you a, an ancient promise that was made, and then I want to show you a surprising fulfillment. It'll surprise you. Even if you're a Bible nerd, some of this fulfillment perhaps will surprise you, and then I want to talk about a present hope. But look with me, Isaiah chapter 8, let's begin uh, with verse 1. Now the setting, I should tell you that before we begin, 700 BC, this is uh, in Judah. And when I say Judah in this message, really think Israel. It's not exactly the same thing, but, but very similar, uh, Judah, Israel. So Judah, their king is Ahaz, and he is not a good king. He is a weak king. He is a vacillating king. And so Judah, things are bad and they're about to get worse. There are a lot of parallels between what was going on 700 BC in Judah and what is going on today, 2020, in America. Uh, there was little confidence in the government. There, were, there had been poor decisions that had been made years earlier that, 
that were affecting their day-to-day lives. There was an enemy. There was an enemy. We'll see that more in a moment. There was an enemy that was oppressing them and was ready to launch an attack. People were living with great fear. So in the middle of that, Isaiah 8.1 says, Then the Lord said to me, Take a large piece of parchment and write on it, write with an ordinary pen, Meher Shalal Hash Baz. Now, what is that? Well, God instructed Isaiah to make a poster, to make a sign, and write this one word, really a compound word, so you could call it two or three or four words, but write this word on this sign as a message to the people. Now, a few verses later, this word is going to become the name for Isaiah's next son. And so I thought I would just pause here, just give you a bonus. If you are about to have a son and you're looking for a name, this is the name. The fact that you're hearing this message, sign from the Lord, you name your child this. For that purpose, you can name your daughter. Nobody will recognize that it's a male name, not a female name. But this is Isaiah's son. And, and the name meant, the words uh, meant uh, that there is going to be a speedy attack and a complete plunder. So there was the prophecy that in a short time, the nation of Assyria would attack from the north, would come south, and would overwhelm Israel and Judah, would destroy the land, would take many of the, of, of the people of the land, exile and in, in Israel, Judah would be defeated militarily. And so this promise was made. In the next two or three verses, we see some details. It's going to happen in the next couple of years. And if we go down to verse 7, we pick up with the story with a description, a poetic description of what the Assyrian army is going to do uh, to the Israelites. It says, the Lord will certainly... Bring against them the mighty rushing water of the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, and all of his glory. It will overflow its channels and spill over all of its banks. It will pour into Judah, flood over it, and sweep through, reaching up to the neck, and its flooded banks will fill your entire land. And so it's going to be utter devastation, utter devastation. Now I want to skip down a few more verses and pick up in verse 11. It seems that the people, knowing this was coming, and this would have been a natural reaction, I'm sure, the people are very negative. The people are saying, woe is me, and life is hard, and there's no hope, and and they they were just filled with gloom. And while circumstances certainly can, can be terrible, as Christians, as God followers, we should never have a spirit of gloom, should we? We should have a spirit of confidence. So look at what the Lord tells Israel, tells Isaiah, rather, in the middle of this gloom. Verse 11, for this is what the Lord saith to me with great power to keep me from going down the way of this people, to keep me from being like everybody else. Verse 12, the message of God, do not call everything a conspiracy. Don't call everything a conspiracy that these people say is a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. You are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. Only he should be feared and only he should be held in awe. He says, Isaiah, your confidence must be in the Lord. Now, let's look to chapter 9, verse 1. And these other verses we're skipping are helpful verses, but just in the, in the spirit of being wise with our time. Let, let's look at chapter 9, verse 1. It says, nevertheless... 
the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. That's a lot of places, and it might seem like that's not an important thing, but those places that he lists there, Zebulun and Naphtali, those are some of the most important places. Everybody should know the story of, of Zebulun and, and Naphtali. So let me show you a map. Show us map number one, if you will. And, and this may be hard for you to see, but the colored regions on the map, this is the nation of Israel as it existed in Isaiah's day. Now the different colors show you where the different tribes of Israel, where those people settled when they of course, cross the Red Sea and through the desert and Joshua brings them in the promised land and they begin to settle. Here's where they settle. Now, if you'll notice at the top of the map, you see a yellow spot and then below that, a light purple spot. Now, show us map number two. We'll zoom in on that. So the yellow spot, and I know you can't read the words, but the yellow spot, that is Naphtali. Naphtali, the region of Naphtali. The purple spot, I guess that's purple, just to, the, just to the west of that, I'm looking at it backwards, just to the west of that, uh, that's, um, that's Zebulun. So you've got Naphtali and Zebulun, and they're right at the northern part of Israel. Now here's why that's important and why it fits into verse 1. So for years, for centuries, these populated areas, these were the most populated areas in the northern part of Israel, these were the areas that suffered when there was an attack. Whether it was the Assyrians or the Medes and Persians or whoever, they would always attack Israel from the north. And so they would come from the north to the south, and these were the two regions that were first devastated by the, by the enemy. And so if you lived in the heart of Israel, you would get news from these two places that an attack had begun. Bad news was coming. The news that they always received from these two places. It was always bad news. A, a, an enemy is coming. Destruction is coming. And it always came because it started the way the enemies would come down. It would start with these two regions. These were the bad news regions of Israel. Now, one more thing I want you to notice before we, before we pull that map is the Sea of Galilee. And that'll be important in a moment. It's mentioned here in verse 1 of chapter 9. Do you see the blue spot sort of in the middle, uh, the southern part perhaps of the map right in the middle? That's the Sea of Galilee. And, and so I just want you to see where that is. We'll come back to that in just a moment. So here in verse 1, he says, times are changing. In the past, bad news has come from these places, but that's not always the way it's going to be. At some point, good news is going to come from these places. A light is going to come from these places. Well, let's look at verse 2. It says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. So, Further description of the good news that's eventually going to come from these two regions. It's going to be, as I said, a light. It's going to be relief. It's going to be peace. You're used to hearing of war from these places. One day, he promises us, you will hear of peace from, from these places. Now, if you look down to verse 4, 
Here he begins to tell us of three reasons why there's going to be salvation. There's going to be a rescue as this light comes from these northern areas. And he's going to give us three reasons. They each begin with the word for. Uh, you see verse 4, verse 5, verse 6. In verse 4 it says, For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. Now what's he talking about? Well, the day of Midian refers to Gideon. And Gideon won a battle against his enemies, not because he had the greatest army, not because he had the sharpest swords, but he won a battle because of the power of God. It wasn't dependent upon man. It was dependent 100% on God. And so he says, when this miracle comes, when this good news comes from the north, it's not going to be some military victory. It's not going to be something that's dependent upon man and man's resources and man's ability. It's going to be from the Lord. Now look at verse 5. He says, for every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. He says that you will no longer need the implements of battle. You'll be able to burn your boots. You'll be able to put away your weapons because this is a victory that comes from the Lord. And then verse six, the verse we're so familiar with. I love this verse. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. That's what's gonna come from the north. That's a description of how God's going to bring not bad news from the north, but good news from the north. Let's walk through that just a little bit. It begins by saying a child will be born. When children were born in Israel, it was always a reminder that there's hope. There's hope. No matter how bad things are, there is hope. And then it says in the next phrase, a son will be given to us. Now, there have been a lot of sons born in Israel in that day and, and today. What's special about this son? Well, when he says, when he uses the vocabulary, the son has been given to us, that vocabulary matches something he says a couple of chapters prior to this. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, listen to this. The Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive and have a son, and you will name him Emmanuel. And so there's a connection between a son will be born, I mean a child will be born, and then a son will be given. And the hint here is this is a son that God is going to give. And then the hint is confirmed in the, next, in the next few lines. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. And we'll, we'll come back to those things in, in, in a moment. But, but I want you to see here what has been promised. They're living in a time of uncertainty. They know that the enemy is massing troops on the border. Uh, their government is in disarray. Their finances uh, are, are, are just terrible. They're, they're hopeless. They think that there's, that there's no way of escape. But God says, soon there's going to be good news from the north, from these two places, and you can count on it. A son will be born. And we, we skipped it. I didn't mean to. It says the government will be on his shoulders. He's going to come and be in charge. It'll be the Lord that will be in charge. And so, so there's this promise. And you know, if you know your Bibles, uh, you know that the promise was fulfilled in who? The promise was fulfilled in Jesus. Now that's the prophecy, the ancient prophecy and the fulfillment. But Perhaps you're saying, and this is reasonable, well, big deal, pastor. 
So there was some promise made a whole long time ago, and then it was fulfilled a long, long time ago. And I don't know any of those people, or I don't know any of those places, never heard of them before. And so there was a promise and there was a fulfillment, and I'm glad of that perhaps, but how does that help me today? How does that help me wait? How does that help me endure when times are hard, when the, un, when, when the future is uncertain? Well, I know just being aware of a promise and a fulfillment doesn't do that. But I'm convinced, and and here's what the Bible teaches, that the more we know and understand exactly how God fulfills his promises, the more encouragement we'll have, the more hope we'll have, the more strength we'll have today. The people who are strongest today in the midst of all the difficulties and all the uncertainties, the people that are strongest today are the people who, who have a clear understanding of how God has, has been faithful to his promises in the past. And that gives us confidence in the future. You know, I am, when my wife tells me something, I, I believe her. If she tells me that she's taking care of something, I believe her. If she tells me she's done something, I believe her. Because we have a whole lot of years of her telling me something and then it being true. I trust her. She's, she keeps her promises. She's honest. When we understand how God keeps his promises, it helps us in the most difficult times trust him. So we've looked at this ancient prophecy, 700 BC. Now let's go to the time of Christ. And I want you to see specifically how this was fulfilled. And if you're looking at the outline, this really begins the outline. So the first thing we're going to learn is that God is in control. So hold a finger, if you will, in Isaiah chapter 9 and turn to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 4. Now, I I, I ask you to turn, if you will. If you're going to pull the Bible out of the rack in front of you, I looked it up this morning. It's page 857. Um, It's important, I think. We could have put these verses on the screen very easily. I could just read them to you. I am going to read them to you. But I think it's important to be able to put your eyeballs on this. It is so amazing. Matthew chapter 4. This is right at the beginning of Christ's ministry. He's, uh, he's been born, he's grown up, uh, he's been baptized, he's gone through a time of temptation. And now Matthew chapter 4, middle of Matthew 4, he's about to begin his ministry. This is where everything starts, Matthew, middle of Matthew chapter 4. So let's read, beginning in verse 12. It says, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Now have we encountered that word before? We, we sure did. We saw it in Isaiah chapter 9. So Jesus hears that John has been arrested. Jesus goes to Galilee. Verse 13, he left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region, look at these words, of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I'm not sure I even knew those two words were in the New Testament. Did you know that they were there? Look at them, Zebulun and Naphtali. So that's where he goes. That's the region that he's in. Now skip down a few verses. We're going to come back and read all of this, but I want you to see verse 17 next. It says, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. So he goes to these to region, Zebulun and Naphtali, and he begins to preach, and he preaches, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is coming. He's, he's talking to people about how they can have a right relationship with God, and his ministry begins. Now, 
Let's go back to verse 14 that we skipped a moment ago. To me, this is one of the most beautiful passages in all the New Testament. When we skip over, I know, but it's beautiful. Look at it. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. So Matthew's writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit said, hey, this sounds familiar to me. Jesus has gone to Zebulun and Naphtali and he begins to preach. That's where he's starting his ministry. Seems like I've heard this before. Yes, I remember. This is a part of a prophecy. It's right there in Isaiah chapter nine. And then he, he, he quotes it. Verse 15, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali along the road by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Don't you see how amazing this is? 700 years earlier, there had been this prophecy that was so unlikely, in a place that was so unlikely, in a way, in a manner that was so unlikely. But now here, 700 years later, just as it was described, out of these two places that that were known for the bad news that they would bring, a light has, has come forth, a light that people can see, a light that is Jesus. Let me show you, let me show you the maps again. Show us map number two, if you will. And so this is a map we saw a moment ago, the yellow that you see there, uh, and then the and then the purple. So that's Naphtali and Zebulun, and you see the lake. You see um, the Sea of Galilee. So show us map number three. We're gonna zoom in on that a little bit, right on the lake. So here's the here's the Sea of Galilee. Had an opportunity to go to this sea a couple of years ago, one of the most one of the most fascinating things I've ever been a part of. Uh, this lake, uh, we call it a sea, but it's not a saltwater body of water. It's, it's just a freshwater lake. It's about the size, almost exactly the size of the loop around Nacogdoches. And so when I went, I was trying to get my head around just how big this was, and I superimposed the maps. And it's almost exactly the same area as we have inside our Nacogdoches loop. So that gives you an idea. It's a lake. It's a big lake, but it's not an ocean. It's not that kind of, kind of big. And this is the area around the Sea of Galilee where 95% of everything Jesus did right here in a space probably the size of Nacogdoches County, that's where Jesus did almost all of his ministry. And, and you can't see these cities on here, but if you, if you could stand closer, if you could see, you'd see that just... Uh, just above and, and to the west of the Sea of Galilee, northwest, you have Chorazon, where Jesus cursed the city. Uh, just above here, uh, the, the Jordan River comes from the, comes from the north, and it, it empties into the Jordan, into the Sea of Galilee, and then back out of the Sea of Galilee. But just, just on the Jordan, a few miles above this map, is, um, is Caesarea Philippi, where, where Jesus said, Uh, to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Jesus said, or Peter rather said, you are, you are the Messiah. You're the son of God. And Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And the gates of hell are just, just north of this, of what you see pictured on the map. Uh, Just to the west of the Sea of Galilee, you have uh, Nazareth. That's where Jesus grew up. You have uh, Cana just north of there. That's where Jesus Uh, conducted his first miracle. You have Nain, the city where Jesus uh, raised the child from the dead. This is the region. This is where Jesus did all of his ministry, much of his ministry. 
And, and so you see that while this had notoriously been the place where bad news would come, now the good news, the light, Jesus has come and he changes, changes the world. Here's the message I learned from that. My God is in control. It might not have looked like it uh, sitting in 700 BC, waiting for the Assyrians to show up, watching the news every night. They're giving you know, statistics about how many soldiers the Assyrians have and how sharp their swords are and, and how fast their horses are. And everybody's quaking with fear. And it must have seemed like the world was falling apart, but it wasn't. That while there might be bad news from the north today, there was coming a time when a light would come and God is in control and we can trust him, his plan, his plan and his promise always fulfilled. I, somebody will come up and correct me after the sermon and I hope you do. But uh, for those of you who underline things in your Bible, I, I think that's a good thing to do. Uh, but for those of you who underline things in your Bible, I'm willing to bet that nobody has Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 16 underlined. I mean, that's just the passages we skip over. So there's some prophet, prophecy about some place I can't pronounce and never heard of. But I want you to circle it. Because what this is, is not just some obscure geographic reference. What this is, is a picture of how God always answers his promises. Now, the second thing we see here is not just the geographic good news, but we see, we see the good news in the person of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the answer to every question. The fulfillment here is not just a geographical fulfillment. There's something more. So let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 9, and, and, and let's look at these descriptions of who Jesus is. And so it says, first of all, that he is the wonderful counselor. The wonderful counselor. What does that mean? Well, if you go to a counselor, you go because you need some information. You go because you need some help. You go because you want somebody to speak wisdom into your life. And so it's a good thing to go to a counselor if you, if you have need for something like that. And counselors can be helpful and often they can say the perfect thing to you. But here it says that Jesus is our counselor. Ultimately, you'll not get the counsel from people. If it's the right counsel, it will be counsel from the Lord. He is the wonderful counselor, guides us in, in every direction. He is the answer to every problem. He has the truth. But notice it doesn't just say counselor. It says wonderful counselor. Well, what does wonderful mean? That's one of those words that we terribly misuse. There, there's some others, like awesome. The word awesome is a, is a word that's really reserved for a reference to God. But we use it for all kinds of things. You know, it was an awesome pizza. Uh, well, probably not. Uh, well, wonderful is, the, wonderful is the same kind of word. The, the Hebrew lemma for this word appears 13 times in the Old Testament. And every single time it is used to refer to something that could not have been done by man, but could only be done by the Lord. A, a wonderful thing is something that has to be done by God. That's the only way it could be done. You, know, you stand before a painting and you say, that is wonderful. Well, it's not wonderful. It was done by some man or some woman. It might be beautiful. It might be interesting. It might be significant, but it's not wonderful. If you look at the sunset, though, 
That is wonderful, right? No artist has ever been able to do that. Only God has been able to do that. So here it says that Jesus is going to be the counselor, but he's going to be the wonderful counselor. He's going to say things that that only God knows. He's going to provide healing and comfort and direction that only God can provide. He is our wonderful counselor. And then it says he is our mighty God. If you would have asked on the street the typical man or woman in Judah in 700 B.C., what is the most powerful force in the world today, they would have said unanimously, I believe, it is the army of Assyria. No one, no nation stands against the army of the Assyrians. They were, they were mighty and powerful and they could do anything. And they were a great military. But what we see in this story is that God is so great that even the army of Assyria was a pawn that God used to accomplish what God wanted to accomplish, right? The Assyrians thought that they were just of their own accord, just just battling and conquering. And the Israelites thought, oh no, the Assyrians are, they're, they're, the, they're the lords and the master. But God's sitting back, no, these are chess pieces that I'm moving in order to accomplish this beautiful fulfillment that one day a light would come from Zebulun and Naphtali. I, I think we need to remember when, they're, when they're, we're in the midst of problems, whether it's you know, some, some political uh, frustration that we have, or, or maybe it's uh, COVID, which is the most obvious thing, and all the problems that that is causing people and organizations and companies. Or, or, but, but maybe it's something that's not connected to those. Maybe, maybe in your own life, there's just a struggle. There's just a struggle. Well, what should be our attitude? Listen, our God is so great that he can even use that, that struggle to accomplish his purposes. God can use COVID in your life to accomplish his purposes. God can use some disappointment to accomplish his purposes. God can use cancer to accomplish his purposes. See, the Assyrian army, they thought there's, there's nothing more powerful than that. And God said, no, that is only a tool. So Jesus, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father. Now, that really doesn't make sense to me, right? Because at the first part of verse 6, he it calls Jesus a son, and now you get toward the end of verse 6, it says he's, he's a father. So what does it mean? What does it mean? It has to mean something that is different from wonderful counselor, because he's already said that. It has to be something that's different from mighty God, the power that Jesus would have. It has to be something different, because it's, it is different. Here's what I believe he's, he's referring to. Certainly a father can be a counselor. You can go to your father for advice, wisdom, direction. Certainly a father can be a source of power for you if you need you know, your dad to do something, pick something up if you're a little kid or, or you're a little older, you need $100 or $1,000. You, know, you can go to your dad. He can, be, he can be mighty. But what this tells us is something more than that. A dad, a father, is someone who cares. You see, our Lord is a wonderful counselor and a mighty God but he's also the eternal father who cares for us. I don't labor for anything more in prayer than I labor for my three girls. And there will be problems that they will have that my counsel will be insufficient. There will be problems they have that my, my power will not be helpful 
whatever that might be. My, my money or my influence or my ability to pick up something, it, it won't solve the problem. But there's one thing that will never change. I care for them. I love them. I hurt when they hurt. I'm frustrated when they're frustrated. It, it, it consumes my thoughts. I'm a father. Now, God, Jesus, he's a son, but he's also our father in the sense that he loves and cares for us a million times more than any of us have ever cared for our children. He is the eternal father. And then finally, he's the prince of peace. What kind of peace? Well, two kinds of peace. It, it, it's a peace with God. That's our greatest need. We have no peace with God because God is holy and we're sinners. And that separates us from God. And there's nothing we can do to ever have peace with God because our lives are filled with sin. And even if we never sinned again, the truth is we've already sinned. We've already brought such animosity between us and God. We could never overcome that. We need peace with God. That's our most desperate need. And Jesus made that possible. How? He came and he died and he paid the penalty for the sins that we've committed so that when we trust what he's done and we turn from our sins and embrace the Lord, we can have peace with God because of Jesus. But we can also have the peace of God because of Jesus. I'll just read one, one little passage and, and, and I'll move on. I have more to say. Uh, but, it, but Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, don't worry about anything. Right there, we could stop, right? Is anybody perfectly obedient to that? Do you worry? It says, don't worry about anything, but instead, so here's what you should do instead of worrying. In everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. All that, just a bunch of words that says pray. Don't worry, pray. And the peace of God, he says, which surpasses all understanding. Nobody can explain this. But the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You know one of the things I've learned as pastor? The people who can have confidence, even in a pandemic, people who can have confidence, even when the doctor has bad news, people that can have confidence, even when their kids rebel, people that can have confidence in the hardest parts of life are the people who are prayers. Because peace comes from prayer. And, and if you're not committed to the Lord in prayer, if you don't have a prayer life with the Lord, I'm telling you, the smallest thing will steal you, steal joy from you. There's no way to have peace in a hard time without prayer. That's where peace comes from. And so he says that Jesus will be the prince of peace. Give us peace with God, and he'll give us the peace of God. So this is a description not only geographically tells us where he's going to come from, that's amazing to me, but he tells us who he is. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, eternal father, uh, prince of peace. Uh, I, I'm sure everybody here is familiar with the, the fairy tale Cinderella. You know the story? And so, uh, you know, a woman with wicked sisters goes to, the, goes to the ball, and before midnight she has to leave, and she leaves behind a slipper. And so the prince, he's looking for her because she flees. And uh, all he has is a slipper. So the prince and his, um, his servants go throughout the kingdom to see whose foot fits the slipper. Because they know that if they can find the foot that fits the slipper, 
They will find the princess. Well, Isaiah describes a crown that will only fit one brow, and that's Jesus. He says he will be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. That's a crown. And the only person who can wear that crown is Jesus. He is the only person for whom that is true. It is a celebration. We go through hard times, sure, but we see here that there's this fulfillment, not only geographically, but in the person of Jesus. He's the fulfillment of all that God said would happen. And then finally, I want us to bring bring you to present. Uh, Final victory is certain. We do live in a waiting room world. Uh, we're surrounded by darkness. We, we feel oftentimes like there's an adversary you know, at, at every turn. Uh, we wait for justice. We long for peace. We pray for hope. We wait for death to be defeated. We wait for sicknesses to be healed. So how do we live in this waiting room world? The answer is that we must embrace the hope that is given to us in the Christmas story. That God loves us and he has made a promise. And the God who promises keeps his promise. And we can count on that. Why did God give the people of Judah this prophecy in 700 B.C.? Why at this time did God tell Isaiah to write this name on a, on a sign and to stand up and tell them of this hope. It's because in that day, those people were crushed with fear. They were crushed with, with concern about the Assyrians. They, 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 were, they were so distraught that, that, that they didn't have confidence in their, in their leaders. They, th- th- there was this financial oppression. They, they were hopeless. And in the middle of that hopelessness, God sends his man, Isaiah, to say, have hope in this. God is in charge and has made a promise for those he loves. So today, many of us, same place as those 700 B.C., we're fearful We're frustrated. We don't know what the future holds. Is it going to get better? Is it going to get worse? I don't think anybody knows. But here's what we do know, that we can count on. This is what Christmas tells us. We can count on a God who keeps his promises. I'd like for you to pray something with me. You don't have to pray aloud. Just pray to yourself, head bowed, eyes closed. Would you pray this? Lord, there is uncertainty all around me. And sometimes it feels like the wheels are about to come off this world. And sometimes it feels like the wheels are about to come off my life. Lord, it seems that I can hear the Assyrian army readying an attack. But I know that there is nothing more powerful than you. I know that you make promises and you keep them. I know that you are my everlasting father and that you care for me in more ways than I could ever understand. And so as I face the hard times that may come now or later, I will face them with the spirit of Christmas, with the spirit of the, of the fulfilled promise that we see in the birth of Jesus Christ. 
Give me, because you're so reliable, give me the hope, give me the peace that comes from trusting you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.